Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seeking him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. When I was in seminary, during the summers I had off, I, I worked uh, as a leasing agent. I showed people apartments. As soon as someone moved out of an apartment, my job was to try to find a new renter uh, so that there would be a very small vacancy, very little time when those sat empty. And, and I love this job. It was one of my absolute favorite jobs. I had a blast. Some, every day something hilarious would happen. And not only to me, but I also uh, lived with uh, one and then two guys who were also doing the same job. And so we were always just sharing the stories of the crazy things that were happening when we were out and about doing this work. One thing I did not like about this job was that sometimes you had to go into apartments that had just been vacated and it was before anything had been cleaned. And when you would go into those, some of them were very well kept, very well put in order, but sometimes you never knew what exactly you were going to see, or worse, what you were going to smell. Uh, One time I opened the door, and there were cockroaches, not two or three. I'm talking hundreds, all over the walls, all over the floors, all over the counters. We just shut the door and went to look at a different apartment. Another time, I went into a really nice, newly built uh, townhome that actually I had rented to these people the year before. And as I went in to see how these renters that I had rented to them, oh, and by the way, this was owned by my in-laws, and I went in and watched, and every square foot of the floor was stained with beer. They had had so many parties that year, you could not find one corner, one scrap of the carpet that was clean. By the way, that comes up actually pretty well cleaning, thankfully, for the sake of my in-laws. Another time I walked in, and it wasn't the sight. Again, sometimes it was the smell that would get you. These people had been evicted, and they had had to leave fairly quickly, and they left behind a trash can without any insulation full of dirty diapers. And it wasn't entirely clear where the smell was coming from, but you had no problem identifying that there was a smell as it just rolled over you like a freight train. What I learned is that there's a very different mindset between owning and renting. 
The owners were always harping, always wanting to make sure that, uh, that everything would be kept well up, that the renters would take care of the things. The owners knew how much money they were putting into these properties. But the renters, they probably knew there was some value. They probably had some abstract idea that these were worth something. But some of them, again, not, there were exceptions. This is not universal. There were exceptions to the rule. But in general, those who were renting these places did not have nearly as high of appreciation of the value of those things as an owner would. Because they hadn't been the ones who had worked hard, who had earned the money, who had saved the money, who had spent the money, invested so much money in getting these to be habitable places to live. They did not value them in the same way. Well, in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus is talking about forgiveness, and he's using monetary terms to give us some sense of the idea of the value of what is being transacted when debts are forgiven. And it's raising a question of how much we value, how much we have been forgiven. But it's really important to understand right from the outset that when Jesus is talking about these things, we shouldn't get the idea that forgiveness is something that we can work hard for and earn something from God in the way of forgiveness. In fact, the 10,000 talent debt that Jesus mentions in this parable is proof that there's no way to earn something. There's no way to pay off the debt. It is infinitely higher than anything that we could ever earn back for ourselves so that forgiveness comes only as a free gift of God's free grace. But if that's true, if this is something we haven't worked for, something we cannot earn, then how do we come to an appreciation of it? How do we come to value something for which we have paid nothing? And that's the question that's really in mind here, especially in the way that we then value the forgiveness that people are asking for us to give to them. Our big idea then that Jesus is teaching us in this passage is this, forgive your brother from your heart. Forgive your brother from your heart. So we're going to look at three kinds of forgiveness today. First, legalistic forgiveness. Legalistic forgiveness. Second, lavish forgiveness. Lavish forgiveness. Third, lack of forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness. So let's start in the first section. In verses 21 and 22 where we see legalistic forgiveness. Now again, once again, I want to Draw your attention back to the preceding passage. It's so important as we think about what we're about to look at. In the previous passage, Jesus gave the classic reconciliation process of Matthew 18, the process where we go to our brother to try to gain or to win back our brother from their sin. The brother's sinning. We go to this brother. We, we try to tell them their fault, not to stick it to them, but in the hopes of winning back our brother, in the hopes that our brother will come to his senses and will ask for our forgiveness. And then the idea is that we would forgive them. Now, the way that passage is told, it's of an escalations of what to do if at each step the brother still does not repent from his sins. You, it keeps for, if, he, if he keeps failing to repent, if he keeps failing to repent, ultimately that leads to excommunication, where that person is bound in their sin on earth, and what is bound on earth, Jesus says, um, will also be bound in heaven. But the other side of that is Jesus says what is loosed on earth will be also be loosed in heaven. What you forgive, Jesus is saying in the church, will also be forgiven in heaven. That's the promise here. So again, it's not about sticking it to someone who's done wrong. 
It's the process of going as members of the body to people who are straying and wandering and calling them back for the purpose of forgiving those people and welcoming them back into our fellowship in our life, in our community. And so with this teaching in mind, we read in verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, the, what Peter offers here, what he proposes here of seven times, may not sound like a great deal, but if you understand in the context of his day against the, the teaching of rabbinic Judaism, this is actually a, a very high amount. If, if you look at the rabbis who were teaching at this time, they taught that if your brother sinned against you, you were obligated to forgive your brother three times and no more. So look at Peter here. He's doubled that amount. He's more than doubled that amount. He's rounded up from six to the perfect number of seven. Seven times, that's got to be a complete number of forgiveness of my brother's sins, and then all is done. The problem with what Peter is doing, the problem with the teaching of the rabbis at the time, is that this is fundamentally a legalistic way to look at forgiveness. It looks at the duties that God calls upon us as something that can be weighed, measured, and counted according to certain metrics, and that once that we have sailed over the minimum threshold, then our obligations cease. Now, we've talked a number of times about legalism, if you've been with us, um, as we've been going through our study of Matthew, and I just want to remind you about what Jesus has taught throughout the Gospel of Matthew about legalism. A couple of chapters ago, in, in Matthew 15, Jesus talked, uh, quoting Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, said that legalism stems, it, it, its roots go down in a hard heart that is far from God. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, Isaiah said. And, and Jesus quotes, talking about the legalists around him in that day. But the way legalism works is it rests upon, again, Jesus compares it to a tree, so I'll use that language, a trunk a support system, a sort of a foundation, like a tree has, of a sense of relaxed righteousness. If you remember Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 through 20 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And then unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The standard is infinitely high. So the standard is for forgiveness, Jesus is saying. When he says not just seven, but 77, he's not giving a new number. That's actually the metric. Commentators recognize he's using hyperbole. He doesn't want you to be keeping track of this and say, I'm sorry, can you remind me, are we on 63 or 64? Uh, that's not what Jesus is saying to count that high. He's saying this should be counted so high that you lose track of it. As often as your brother needs this, the requirement of righteousness is that you would forgive your brother as often as he repents and comes to you seeking that forgiveness. But on top of that trunk, that foundation, that support system of a relaxed view of righteousness, which says, I can't do the infinite high standard, but maybe I can bring this down to a level that I can step over that bar of seven times forgiveness, relaxed righteousness. Well, the next part of this is an endless process that twists and turns of trying to look for loopholes in the law. The law is written this way, therefore I don't have to do this way. The law says this, therefore it doesn't say I can't do that. 
You're always looking for loopholes, the legalist is, trying to find, well, maybe if it's not three, maybe my loophole will be I'll go above that and get to seven. But ultimately, what Jesus points out and condemns is that we start making counterfeit commandments. Where, uh, where I have sort of found the loophole to get me out of the responsibility of God's infinitely high as heaven standards of righteousness, well, the way that loophole is crafted, I'm sorry, but it actually doesn't help you. You are brought under the tyranny of the commandments that are counterfeit that I've created, and it's going to bring you into bondage even though they happen to exonerate me. Isn't that convenient for me? And what we're going to see later is the legalist in this parable goes out and commits violence against his fellow servant who is suffering under the same kind of debt. The problem of legalism, the problem of what Peter is pointing out and proposing here is that it deeply undervalues the true cost of our own forgiveness. It's just like in many ways those renters who trash their apartments. Again, they probably had some passing abstract knowledge of the value of the homes that they were in, but it wasn't enough to prevent them from committing thoughtless damage. A legalistic view of forgiveness, on the other hand, scarcely appreciates the infinite gift that is held out to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where there is no sin that cannot be forgiven, no matter how great. And then as many times as we sin, because all of us will continue to sin this life, we continue to come back to the Father, just like we did this morning in our confession of sin. And once again, the Father's word of loving forgiveness toward us stands certain. Your sins are forgiven. In view of the infinitely high cost of sending Jesus Christ into this world to die for us three times, seven times, is an astonishingly stingy way of approaching forgiveness with one another. Well, how do we get out of this? Well, what shatters legalistic forgiveness, a view of legalistic forgiveness, is a full view of God's lavish forgiveness. And so that's the second section. Jesus immediately goes into a parable to explain what he's just taught. The second section, lavish forgiveness in verses 23 through 27. You'll notice in verse 23, Jesus starts with, therefore. In this particular case, the word therefore is, uh, might be translated, some people translate this, on that account or that is why. It's an explanation um, partially of what Jesus has said, but really of the kingdom itself. He's saying, what I just said explains to you something that is true about the kingdom that I'm going to illustrate to you in this parable. You must forgive because of something that is true about the kingdom, namely that the kingdom is to be run in, on an economy that is fueled by forgiveness, endless forgiveness uh, within the body, endless forgiveness within our church family. And he's giving us an explanation why. And so what he does is goes on and gives a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let's pause there for just one moment. The idea of 10,000 talents may not mean a whole lot to us, but a talent was worth six denarii. Does that make it clearer for you as you think about this? So a, denarii, a denarius was a, a day's wage. So if you think about it, if there was one Sabbath day where you couldn't work, six denarii would equal one talent, therefore one week's work, one full week's work. So if you owe 10,000 talents, you owe 10,000 weeks of work, just under 200 years 
of labor. That's a long time, and that's just to earn it. That doesn't include your other expenses to live, to save up beyond what you have to spend to live. It would take you more than a lifetime to accomplish this work. And one commentator said, this is like when a child says a million gazillion. That's not a word, or that's not a number, uh, but it gets to the infinitely high value of what is owed here. And so in view of this great debt, the king says to the orders that the, 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 the servant should be sold, but not only him, also his wife and his children into slavery, and that payment should be made. Now, this sounds really barbaric to us, but understand, in those days, it was actually a fairly um, normal way of dealing with this kind of a debt. They would be sold, that is, sold into slavery. What's the kind of slavery? Well, don't think of, like, the chattel slavery that we had in America for a long time. It would be more like being put to work. You would be put in a job where you would be working off your debt, and you would really have no way of getting out of it because the debt you owed was too high, but now you would be providing some value in some place where you could begin to work off that debt. That's the idea that's here. And what one commentator, Lenski, points out is this really isn't the action of, a, of some kind of pettiness, of some kind of tyrant. This is strict justice. This is exactly what this servant deserves. And so in verse 26 and 27, knowing that there's really no way out for the doom that is going to be forced upon him and his family, this man in desperation throws himself at the king's feet. And wonder of wonders, the king forgives him. And look at how it says it in verse 27, out of pity for him. This is the word for uh, that gut-level reaction of compassion, a deep sense of pity moving up in the, in the bowels of the king to forgive this man. The king forgives him. This is the same compassion that Jesus talked about just a few passages earlier when he talked about the great rejoicing, when the shepherd, leaving the 99, goes and finds the one lost sheep and brings this sheep home. That's the same kind of joy, the same kind of compassion, the same kind of pity that we're reading from this king here. This is lavish forgiveness. You know, one of the stories that I like more than uh, other books that I've read, uh, it's a very famous story, Pilgrim's Progress. I hope you haven't read it, or I hope you have read it. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. We have, there are little kids' versions you can read with our children. We got a new one for my son, Aaron, and he's been joyed reading about the little rabbit um, who's a pilgrim in that, in that story. Uh, but the story of Pilgrim's Progress tells the tale of, it's an it's a allegory, about a man named Pilgrim, a Christian, um, and he lives in the city of destruction. When he hears someone come and read from the great book of the great king who lives in the celestial city of coming judgment against the city of destruction, Christian suddenly feels that there's a crushing weight on his back, a burden. Now, the people around him don't feel this. They don't recognize this. His wife and his children don't recognize the sin on his back. The people he knows in the city don't recognize the sin on their back, but he realizes it. And once he realizes that crushing weight on his back, he is desperate to do anything to get rid of it. He's willing to make any sacrifice. He's willing to find relief no matter what. He's always asking everyone he meets along the way, whether they are bad influences or good influences, can you help me get rid of this burden on my back? Now, the reason I tell you this, and by the way, the, the bad people tell them, go to the Mount of Legality, legalism. That's where you can get rid of your burden on your back. But people like the evangelist and Goodwill say, I can't release it to you. You have to keep going until you get to the foot of the cross, and only there will the burden fall off. But the reason I tell you that 
is because sometimes we can learn the value of something by working really hard and saving up and earning a lot of money in order to purchase something, earning something. And after having gone through that process, we value it because we know how hard it was to acquire it. But sometimes, and this is the case of forgiveness, we learn the value of what we have been forgiven when we try to do whatever it would take to get rid of the debt that we need forgiven for us. And when we do all that we can, we recognize that after all that we have done, that we haven't even made a dent, we haven't even scratched the surface. We realize that the cost is infinitely higher than we could pay off or imagine. Well, that's another way to learn the value of something. When we realize that we have been forgiven a million gazillion in God's economy, something infinitely high, a nonsensical kind of amount of debt that we owe to the Lord, and when we see the full weight of that and there's no way to pay it back, that's when we can learn the value of what God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. Now, if we are to cherish the gospel, really value what God has given us in Jesus Christ, we need to be brought to a full realization of exactly this, the debt of our sin and how impossible it would be to earn God's forgiveness. And what Jesus is talking about in this part of the parable is that realization comes when the Lord brings to our consciences a reckoning, a reckoning by the conviction that comes through His Word. As we're reading His Word and realizing all the ways that we fall short, suddenly it is brought to mind how much we owe. Martin Luther talked about it this way. Commenting on this passage, he writes, Before the king drew him to account, he had no conscience. He didn't feel the debt and wouldn't have gone right along, made more debt, and cared nothing about it. But now that the king reckons with him, he begins to feel the debt. So it is with us. The greater part does not concern itself about sin, goes on securely, fears not the wrath of God. Such people cannot come to the forgiveness of sin, for they do not come to realize that they have sin. But if they were serious about it, they would speak far otherwise. This servant, too, says before the king reckons with him, so much I owe to the Lord, namely 10,000 talents, but he goes ahead and laughs. But now that the reckoning is held and his Lord orders him, his wife, and his children and everything to be sold, now he feels it. So, too, we feel in earnest when our sins are revealed in the heart, when the record of our debts is held before us, then the laughter stops. Then we exclaim, I am the most miserable man. There is none as unfortunate as I on the earth. Such knowledge makes a real, humble man, works contrition, so that no one can come, or so that one can come to the forgiveness of sins. What Luther is saying there is that saving faith always includes necessarily genuine repentance from sin. A real understanding and appreciation of what we have done and the debt that we have incurred, uh, incurred before the Lord. Now, it's never going to be an exhaustive, a thorough knowledge of all that we have done. Throughout our life, we're continuing to wrestle with our sins and recognize the corruption that is in us and how deep it goes. There's ongoing repentance throughout our life. But you cannot start down that journey of saving faith until it, the flip side of the coin is met with true repentance from a reconciliation, a, re a recognition of all that we owe to the Lord. Now, this forgiveness is offered to the servant. But what we see is that after this, the servant proves that he has, even after all that the king has spoken to him, he has no real understanding of what has been forgiven to him, 
And therefore, he brings the crushing, legalistic, uh, counterfeit commandment on others to demonstrate that this is not a man who has really understood forgiveness. He has a lack of true forgiveness in his heart. Let's keep reading and see how Jesus tells this story. But when that same servant, verse 28, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. A small fraction of what he owed. And seizing him, he began to choke him. One commentator points out, do you notice he chokes him before he says a word to him? That's the kind of legalistic cruelty that we can breed in our hearts if we're not careful. And he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Notice also there that those are the same words that he himself had spoken to the king. Have patience with me and I will pay you. And actually one commentator points out, he had promised, the, the original servant had promised that he's going to pay everything, even though that's impossible. Whereas here this one says, I will pay you. And really it actually would be possible to pay off a hundred denarii debt. Uh, that would be possible. It'd be hard, but it'd be possible. But here we read in verse 30 that the servant refused. Literally, he was not willing. Contrast that against the compassion that the king felt for the servant who owed 10,000 talents. This servant, on the other hand, was not willing to forgive the one who owed 100 denarii. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, this brings a lot of people, this brings a lot of people to see this and to worry about it Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Now that word there for jailers, if you look at the footnote in the ESV, it marks it, but it's really the word for torturers, not just people who keep a jail. He handed him over to the torturers. Jail was not good enough for him. He handed him over to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, as we look at this, it's very important to understand that this was not the case where the servant was truly forgiven and then the king withdrew that forgiveness. If we're thinking about how this parable relates to us, that's kind of the way, a little bit of the way it works in the, in the, in the story. Uh, but as we think about what the rest of the Bible teaches, for all those who have been forgiven, you can't lose that. If you truly have been saved, we were talking about this in my Sunday school class this morning, but Philippians 1 verse 6 says that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. No one who has been forgiven will somewhere along the way sin so much that he loses forgiveness along the way. But what does happen is that those who hear the free offer of the gospel of Jesus, of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, and even some of those who make a profession of faith, I do believe that. And even some of those who on that basis are then uh, being converted or are baptized into the church. Some of those people do not truly believe. Hypocrites do not truly believe. Hypocrisy is always tied up in legalism. The way they're conceiving of the forgiveness is not on the basis of God's free offer of grace in the gospel. It's on some metric, some legal basis. 
some loophole that allows him to receive forgiveness with one hand, but then to choke his fellow servant with the other hand as he demands the payment of that debt back to him. It demonstrates that the servant never really understood what was being extended to him, and therefore he lacked that forgiveness. He wanted to avoid punishment, but he didn't recognize or value the greatness of his debt. So once he had escaped punishment, he felt no need. That loophole has now closed when he went to go to talk to his neighbors. And Jesus closes in verse 35 with a somber warning. So also your father will do to you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Therefore, our big idea is forgive your brother from your heart. Now, how do we apply this? This is one of the difficult parables that doesn't leave us with a warm, fuzzy feeling as we're reading this. There's a, there's a severe warning at the end of this. What do we do with this? Well, once again, to clarify, this is not a story about someone who had forgiveness but then lost it. No truly forgiven sinner can lose salvation. This is rather a story about someone who despised the offer of the lavish forgiveness of the king. The Apostle Paul talks about this kind of different approach to the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The difference between worldly grief, or sometimes translated worldly sorrow, versus godly grief, or godly sorrow. It's the idea of someone who in some sense wants to avoid some kind of a punishment, but does not join that desire to avoid punishment with true faith in Jesus. If you're reading on the the Bible reading plan that we promote, um, the McShane Bible reading plan, um, you may have read from Matthew chapter 27, uh, where Judas betrayed Jesus. 26 or 27, I forget exactly where it is. But I was reading that and it struck to me. Do you notice where it says Judas changed his mind? Well, in other versions like the King James Version, it says Judas repented when he realized what he had done in betraying the Lord Jesus. The problem with what Judas did is that he wanted to sort of get out of the punishment. Ooh, I don't want those consequences to have come about. Can you just take the 30 pieces of silver by which I betrayed my Lord back and we can just call it all good? We can just wash this away? And they weren't willing to do that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees insisted upon crucifying Jesus. But what doesn't Judas do at that point? He doesn't go to Jesus. He doesn't look to Jesus and throw him at the feet of Jesus for mercy. Instead, overcome with grief and despair, he goes out and hangs himself. It is possible to be brought to misery over your sins and yet it not be real repentance before God. Because true repentance is always joined with a sense of saving faith, saving trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may feel awful this morning and it has nothing to do with salvation until you recognize that the burden on your back can be removed, not at the mount of legality, where if you just do six of these things and seven of the other and forgive three times, poof, your sin is gone. But when you come to the foot of the cross, there the burden falls away, and you will never carry it again. Seek that forgiveness if you haven't. Do you know our Lord, our King, the High King of Heaven, loves to forgive sinners? He rejoices over bringing back one lost sheep. His infinitely high as heaven, love prompted Him not just to look upon our misery and sin, but to send His Son Jesus Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To take upon a human nature like ours in every respect, yet without sin, 
to be despised and hated at every turn of his life until he was beaten, his beard pulled out, spat upon, bruised, and nailed to a cross where every breath was torture until he gave up his last breath to die for you and for your sins. This morning, if you are not in Christ, you stand condemned. You're a dead man walking. The reckoning will come. The Lord will one day judge the world by the Christ, Jesus. But today, Jesus Christ stands ready to save. He is the one who's offered himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice. And by his resurrection, he has conquered death. And today, he is seated in heaven, the work done. And he's praying that his Father would forgive sinners according to the blood that he sprinkled for them. Do you see that great burden on your back? Jesus Christ can remove it. Turn to him this morning. But what Jesus further applies this passage is if you do know this forgiveness, if you have indeed come to treasure how much you have been forgiven, that should change your heart to forgive your brother from your heart. How is your heart changed? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of the Father of the Son. The Holy Spirit takes and brings into our hearts. The King James Version has sheds abroad in our hearts. Filling our hearts until our hearts overflow with God's own love that spills out upon the people around us, especially those who have wounded us, who have harmed us, against whom we have something because they have sinned against us. Those who have truly been forgiven have tasted God's lavish generosity. And when we stand in wonder of how lavish God's forgiveness truly is, it doesn't make sense for us to turn around and then measure out spoonfuls of forgiveness to other people in response. If you're struggling to forgive someone else, I want to encourage you to set your mind on the cross of Jesus Christ to ponder the million gazillion that you owed before an infinitely holy God. The lavish love of God that we behold in God's Word as Jesus Christ is portrayed, is crucified in our sight by faith. Not visually, but by faith as we read about what Jesus does for us. This can, this will change your heart. And in the process, Jesus calls His church to be transformed together as we are all receiving and extending the same forgiveness that flows from the source of the Father of lights in heaven so that the church can function as an economy fueled by the forgiveness of each one, of one another and our members. Let's now pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed forgive us. Father, we owe so much, we owe more than we could ever repay, and yet you extend forgiveness to us. Please forgive us for the sake of Jesus Christ. If there's any yet here today who do, does not know Jesus, I pray that you would lead those individuals to believe in Jesus, to come to the foot of the cross, recognizing that what Jesus did was for them. So that burden on their back can roll away, never to carry it again. Because it was nailed to the cross. And Father, I pray that in our midst you would help us to love one another, to forgive those who have hurt us and harmed us, to forgive 77 and so many more times so that this church would be marked by the forgiveness that comes from the gospel of Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray.
Amen.